Well, today I want to talk about investing. Good investing and bad investing. And to kick things off, I'm going to go out on a major limb and say that if you're betting on the Chiefs to win tonight, that's a bad investment. I'll stick with me for a minute. seen a number of ads on the Facebook enticing viewers to bet on the Chiefs or what the franchise calls themselves the Chiefs Kingdom. One of those ads says bet $5 get $200. I seriously hope none of you have taken that bet. It's a bad investment. Well, why do I say that? Am I saying that the Chiefs won't beat the Bengals tonight? That's far more than I know. But I'm going to speak about something that I do know today with certainty. The Chiefs' kingdom, if you would like to call it that, it will fall. It will not prevail. And any money invested in this game tonight, it will not last. Now you may think, I, I know all of that, but how many thousands of people around the country have made such bets today on a football game? There are things, however, and this is the point that I want to make, that you can invest your money in today that will last. If you invest in the kingdom of heaven, your money will accrue interest into eternity. It is a sure bet. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that many believers today, myself included, are not financially invested in the kingdom as they ought to be. The data's clear. But it's not for lack of funds. Do you know that sitting in this room are basically the richest people who have ever lived in the history of the world? It is not for lack of funds. It is for lack of of focus. It is for lack of zeal for the kingdom of heaven. We have zeal for many things on earth. We get really excited about an AFCA championship, don't we? We get really excited when we get something new. We even get excited when we hear that a new Star Wars series is going to drop on Disney+. Plus. I get excited about all of those things. I'm ready to watch the game tonight. I get excited about those things as well. They're not necessarily bad. But this is the perspective that we're lacking. They won't last. My sermon this morning is on giving. We're in a series on our membership covenant and one of the commitments that we make to one another in the membership covenant 
is that we will give generously to care for one another's needs as well as to advance the mission of Jesus Christ. So you may be thinking, as you sat there this morning, I get what this is all about. But let me just say at the outset that I have a great burden on my heart this morning. And my primary goal this morning is not to increase your giving. My primary goal this morning is to increase your zeal for the kingdom of heaven. My primary goal is that you would see the kingdom of heaven as the primary thing that you are to be about in your life. In the words of Jesus, that you would actually do what he says in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. I'm not going for your purse strings this morning. I'm going for your heart strings. Our giving matters immensely. Giving to fund the mission, it matters, but that's not what I'm talking about. Our giving matters immensely because our giving is an indicator light on the dashboard of our hearts. It may be the most obvious external sign that gives the temperature of our spiritual lives. Originally, I listened listed Galatians 6 as my text for today, but I made a change. I picked up this little book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. I've read it two times before. I read it straight through in two settings, weeping on the pages, realizing how out of whack my priorities are in this life. But that's not why I made the change. The main reason I made the change is I thought this argument that Alcorn is putting forward is in line with everything that we've been talking about so far in this series. What is membership in a church on earth? It is meant to reflect our membership in heaven. What is corporate worship and the gathering in the church on earth? It is meant to be a reflection of our gathering around the risen Christ. And so giving on earth is meant to be an investment into the eternal kingdom of heaven. And it reveals maybe more than any other thing where our hearts are. Are they here on earth? Or are they in heaven? My sermon this morning will be drawing heavily from Alcorn's book and from Mike Andrus's sermon that was also based on that book, which drove me to that book. So apologies, most of this sermon comes directly from Alcorn or from Andrus. But my text will be Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. I'll be looking at some other passages throughout the sermon but let's begin by reading Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. And would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? 
Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Four, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Short passage that comes to us in two parts. There is a set of commands, verses 19 to 20, a negative command and a positive command. And then a reason for obeying this command in verse 21. But this particular passage doesn't give us a lot of specifics on how we can go about obeying this command. So what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to look at the commands in 19 to 20. Then I'm going to take an extended detour and look at a number of passages in the Gospels and the Epistles to show us how we can obey this command. Then we'll come back at the end to the main burden of this sermon, which is the reason for obeying the commands, the matter of the heart in verse 21. So let's begin with the command in verses 19 to 20. This is how I would summarize it. Stockpile for yourselves treasures in heaven. The heart of this command I will get to in a moment. But I think in order to understand where Jesus is driving at, we have to begin by clearing out of the way a couple of common misconceptions about money, material possessions, and what we think the Christian life is all about. The first misconception that we need to get out of the way is that God is against us accumulating wealth. This passage, in fact, commands us to accumulate wealth. Store up for yourselves treasure. Literally, the word is stockpile, stack, hoard, treasure. It's commanding us to accumulate wealth. The second misconception that we need to get out of the way is that we should never act in our own self-interest as Christians when it comes to material possessions. Again, this passage says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, it is not calling us to a life of selfishness. There is a difference between doing things selfishly and doing things for our own self-interest. When we act selfishly, we pursue gain at someone else's expense. But the Bible is very clear that we can seek the interests of others while at the same time pursuing our own self-interest. In fact, when we do seek the interests of others, we are often doing that very thing of seeking our own interests. But the main thing that this passage is correcting is not about accumulating wealth. It is not about accumulating wealth for ourselves. The main thing this passage is correcting is where we will stockpile the treasures that we are commanded to store up for ourselves. And we are called to store them up 
in heaven. What's the most important three things in real estate, friends? Location, location, location. That's what this passage is driving about. The main thing is where you are stockpiling your treasures. It's dumb to store up treasure on earth. And it's smart to store up treasures in heaven. The reason it's foolish to accumulate a bunch of wealth on earth is because it won't last. Moths will come in and eat our stuff. Rust will destroy our stuff. Thieves will come in and take our stuff. I could go through gobs of other passages, especially in the wisdom literature, to demonstrate that our stuff won't last. But let me simply read two passages. First, Proverbs 23, 4-5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Psalm 49, 16-17. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. Nothing. His glory will not go down after him. In other words, as you've heard said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you when you go. Do you believe that? Do your actions demonstrate that you believe that? The converse is the main thing. Treasures stored up in heaven will last. Moths will not destroy them. Rust rust will not destroy them. Nobody can take the treasures that are stored up in heaven from us. Randy Alcorn uses an illustration. He asks us to imagine that we're alive at the end of the Civil War. We are a northerner, but we are living in the south, and our life in the south has been good to us. We've accumulated a lot of wealth, but here's the thing. It's all in Confederate currency. We've got special intel that the south is going to lose um, imminently, and what will be the case after the war? That Confederate currency won't spend back home in the North. So what should this person do? They should exchange it for U.S. currency, the only thing that will spend when the war is over. Sure, keep enough of the Confederate currency to live on, to take care of your needs, but exchange the rest into something that will be useful in the future. As a Christian, do you know that eventually this world as we know it is coming to an end? Do you know that either when you die or when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, all that you have accumulated will be worthless? But did you also know that you can convert that earthly currency into heavenly currency? currency even now in our life 
on this earth. How do we do that? How do you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven by using the treasures that we have been given on earth? In order to answer this question, we're going to look at a number of passages together. But here's what we'll learn as we look. We are called to invest God's money in kingdom priorities. We are called to invest God's money in kingdom priorities. We invest the earthly treasures that we have into the things that will advance the kingdom. And as we do this, I know this is hard teaching for us, but the Bible is repeatedly clear on it. We accrue for ourselves in addition to the treasure we already have in Christ, in addition to the inheritance that is ours in Christ, we in some way accrue more material treasures and rewards for ourselves in heaven. Before I get into the specifics of how we do this, I need to lay some groundwork. So I have three sub-points to validate this main point. I won't put them on the screen, but they should be easy to catch if you're taking note. First and foundational, all money belongs to God. This is the truth that lays the ground for any right theology of giving. A truth repeated throughout the Bible. A truth that we know in our head, but it's got to get in our hearts if we're going to get on in following Christ. Job 41.11 God says to Job, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. Haggai 2.8 The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. And get this, Deuteronomy 8.18 You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. Let that sink in, professionals. It is He who gives you power to get wealth. So often when we think of giving, we think, I'll give God His part. I'll keep my part. He gets my 2.3%, which is the standard giving of evangelicals. I keep the other 97.7%. This is a fundamental error. It's not as though God has a part and you have a part. It all belongs to Him. Even your ability to acquire your education, your ability to do your job, your ability to make good and wise investment decisions in the stock market, all of that's from God. It all belongs to Him. Which leads to the second corollary point. 
if it all belongs to him, then we are God's investment managers. We're stockbrokers for God. It all belongs to him. It's his money. But we are stewards of God's money. We have a responsibility to manage God's money in God's ways. We need to be thinking what will advance the interests of God who has given me all of this? What will redound to His glory? What will further His purposes? That should be our perspective every time we set out to make a budget. Every time we balance our checkbook. Every time we swipe that debit card. How will this redound to God's glory and further His interest? Because this is not mine. Now, as money managers, God has given us all kinds of freedom on how we use His money. It's not as though there's an appendix at the back of our Bibles with a balance sheet or a pre-prepared budget. We've got tremendous freedom in Christ for how we manage His money. But we must remember that it is His. And as the parable of the talents teaches us, He expects a return on His investment. He will look to us to see whether or not we have been faithful. Some will multiply wealth for His glory in ways that blow our mind. Others, it will be much smaller, but He expects a return on His investment. Third, God prospers us not to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. Don't get me wrong. It's not as though God wants us to live in poverty. He delights to give good gifts to His children and He wants us to enjoy those good gifts. We're not to live in a box so we can give it all away. We are actually commanded to take care of our family, to make sure that they are clothed, that they are fed. But it doesn't have to stop there. It's not as though we have to be so frugal that we can never enjoy the material possessions that God has given us. Look at Jesus in the Gospels. He's regularly invited to lavish parties. He doesn't rebuke the hosts for putting out such a spread. The woman pours this expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. He doesn't chastise her for being wasteful. We have freedom. And yet, the Bible is clear that the reason God prospers us is so that we can be generous to other people. Let me read for you one proof text for this. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 and 11. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So these two things are parallel. God gives the seed. God gives 
the harvest. And in the same way, you will be enriched in every way, so you'll be given to, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Why does God give to us? So that we can be generous toward others. God owns it all. He gives to us so we can give to others. And we are investment managers of God's money. And when we invest in kingdom priorities, we stockpile up for ourselves treasures in heaven in addition to the treasures we already have in Christ. How do we do this practically? I want to highlight two ways that are very clear in Scripture. First, we give to the poor. Second, we give to advance the gospel. The call to give to the poor is repeated in the Bible and in Jesus' teaching. Notice in these two passages that I've listed on the screen, the way that giving to the poor is linked with stockpiling treasures in heaven. Matthew 19.21, Jesus says to the rich man, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Similarly, in Luke 12.33, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give it to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. I don't believe that Scripture is calling all of Jesus' disciples to sell all that they have. It is a way to turn the things that we have into cash so that we can spend it on the kingdom. But I love 1 Timothy 6, which shows us that there is a way to do with our money something that benefits others without having to sell it all, so to speak. But the heart should nevertheless be God owns it all. Paul says, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Giving to the poor. It's a repeated way in the Scriptures that we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven and reflect the very character of Jesus Christ Himself in what we do. Are you looking for ways that you can directly give to those in need? In the church and in the community? I know that many of you are. Do you have a radar for those in your life who are in need? There's direct ways to give to those in need, but there are many indirect ways as well that are good. It it is very clear in the Scriptures that so much of the giving, people bring the giving to the church, and then the church distributes those funds to those who are in need. So it's not as though you need to be handing out cash to people that you see on the street in order to fulfill this command. As you give to the church, the church gives benevolence funds to those who are in need here. The church gives hundreds of thousands of dollars 
to missions partners and organizations who are on the front lines of doing this work. It's an investment worth making. The other way we invest God's money into the kingdom priorities is through giving to advance the gospel. To make this point, I want to spend a little more time with one passage in Luke 16. It's a somewhat confusing passage. It's the parable of the dishonest manager, but the takeaway point is so important that I want to wade through the confusion for a few minutes. The story itself is actually quite basic. You have something that is parallel with what I've already been teaching. You have a master, one who owns assets, and you have a manager, one who is managing those assets. We don't know the specifics, but the manager was wasting the master's money, and so he was fired. But before he cleans out his desk, the manager decides he'll do something that will affect him in a really positive way when he's eventually thrown out on the street with no income and with no place to stay. He invites all of the people that owe his master money into the office and he starts reducing their debts one at a time. As you can imagine, he made a lot of friends by doing this. And his logic was really simple. I will act in a way now that will affect my future. I will act in a way now that will result in me being welcomed into these people's home when I don't have a place to stay. That's the simple part of the story. The thing that's confusing is that the master in verse 8 commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And Jesus then in verse 9 picks this man up as an example of what we are to do with our money in this life. But it's important to realize that when we're looking at parables, parables only have one point most of the time. This passage is not commending dishonesty. This passage is commending shrewdness. That is the main thing that it is about. He is being praised for his foresight of getting creative with his money in a way that will affect his future. He makes friends now that will receive him later. The point is similar for us. Jesus says in verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, and it will, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He is saying, quite simply, use your temporal possessions now for kingdom purposes, knowing that you will receive eternal possessions later. We all have access to what Jesus calls mammon, or the unrighteous wealth. This is not money that's been spent on betting on the Chiefs or money that has been used in illegal activities. This isn't dirty money that he's talking about. It's just money. The reason he calls it unrighteous wealth is simply to contrast its temporal nature with the eternal nature 
of the true riches in heaven. Money in this life will eventually fail, but we can use it now for things that won't fail. We can use it to make friends who will receive us into eternal dwellings. In the same way that the dishonest manager used it to acquire temporary housing, so to speak, we can use our money to secure a really great eternal dwelling. How do we use money to make friends who will receive us into their into permanent dwellings? This is the whole point of why I've taken all of this time to explain this parable. This is what it is. When we use our money in such a way that those people will end up in heaven. When we use our money on earth in such a way that other people will end up in heaven. Imagine this. You have spent your money on some kingdom priority and you may have no clue how that is being used to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. And one day, when you are in heaven, you will be greeted by somebody who says, as the Ray Boltz song says, Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. That's what's being encouraged here. Spend our money in ways that will advance the gospel. We can do so directly. We can do so indirectly. Some people have the ability to use the wealth that they have to support themselves They can spend time in doing gospel work. Others will use the resources that they have, their homes, their money, for hospitality purposes that open a door for the gospel. But most of the time, we give to gospel work indirectly through giving to missions organizations, to giving to parachurch organizations who are advancing the gospel. But I would say primarily, the money that we give should be to the local church. And the reason I say that, I don't have time to elaborate on. It may seem like that's my own self-interest. But some of it has to do with everything we've been saying about the church over the last few weeks. The church, the local church, we have been entrusted with the gospel. We are called to further the gospel by taking it wide to all peoples. We are called to further the gospel by grounding it deeply in God's people. The local church is God's plan A for His mission of advancing the gospel, of making friends of God in heaven. And so our first giving ought to be to the local church, but it doesn't need to stop there. We've seen what we're called to do We've seen how we are called to do it. I admit my applications have not been elaborate. Read Alcorn's book. I think it's seven bucks on Amazon. Get it. You'll consume it in a day or two and be ready to make more meaningful applications. But now it's time to turn back to Matthew 6.21 to see the reason why people give. Or the reason 
why they don't give. What motivates giving? Here is the point. Your heart always goes where you put God's money. Your heart will always follow where your money is. The Bible is clear. We will be rewarded for the investments that we make in the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 6 talks about rewards in heaven for good works. Luke 6 talks about rewards in heaven for persevering and suffering. Luke also talks of the rewards of showing hospitality to the weak, to the outcast, to the least of these. But as I've said in all of these other passages, there are also rewards for giving. Matthew 6.21 tells us that when we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, then our heart will go after that treasure. What we do with our money, in other words, speaks volumes of what we love and what we value. And that's where I was broken this week. If we love the kingdom of heaven and the rewards of the kingdom of heaven, we will invest in the kingdom of heaven. And we'll be looking for more ways to invest in the kingdom of heaven. We will spend on what we love. Where your money is, there your heart will be also. But friends, I want to encourage you with something. I think this same principle works in the reverse too. It's not only if our heart is right, then we'll give to the right things. Our heart is right, we'll spend on the right things. What if it works in the other way too? What if you give to something even if you're not feeling it, and then your heart follows that thing. Isn't that what happens whenever you invest in something? Maybe some of you have made a substantial investment into a particular stock. I bet you, over the next few weeks or months, you're tracking the stock market a little bit closer than you were before. Right? Your heart follows where You've invested your money. So do you want a more compassionate heart for the lost? Why don't you step out in faith and give to missions? I bet your heart will follow. Have you been convicted over the last few weeks that your heart is not really for the local church? Start giving. Do you want to have an increasing heart for the things of eternity? Well, then give to eternal things. And maybe by God's grace, He will pull your heart along with it. Friends, if we want to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, we have to get our heart around a couple of key things. The first we've been talking about for three weeks We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that? This is not our home. 
Until we get our heart around that, we're not going to make progress in generosity. I'm blown away as I see immigrants, refugees maybe, who are working hard in the United States to do what? Send back money to their families in their home country. That's what we are. We're immigrants in a strange country. And God has, in His wisdom, in His goodness, lavished upon us great resources. We should not be mainly spending them to make our life here in this foreign country plush. We should be sending back checks to the home country. Randy Alcorn's whole book can be summarized in one sentence. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to send it on ahead, we've got to get our heart around it. That we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And then this, that the treasures in heaven are actually worth more than the things that we have on earth. Do you understand that? I don't think I do. Moses got it. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to his reward. Let that sink in. The treasures of Egypt? Some eternal city that he couldn't even see with physical eyes was more valuable than all of the gold in Egypt? Oh, that I had such faith. Or what about the man who found a treasure hidden in a field and he went and sold all that he had in joy so that he could buy that field? Do we get that the kingdom of heaven and the treasures therein are of inestimable, more value than the things that we have on earth? Can we say with the great missionary Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. If the statistics are telling, most of you are like me. You don't quite get these truths. While there are some who are extremely generous, many others are giving very little and some none at all to the priorities of the kingdom. The question is why? And I am convinced it is not for lack of funds. We are the richest nation in the history of the world. It is for lack of focus. It is for lack of faith that the riches of the kingdom of heaven are greater than all of the things that we're spending our money on. Lack of faith of how rich a treasure we possess in Christ. We have not, in other words, been sufficiently captivated by the Gospel. That is our need. Do you realize that in Christ we are rich beyond compare? 
Do you realize that in Christ that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? That in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That in Christ we have an eternal inheritance. That in Christ we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of that inheritance until it comes. We are blessed. We are rich. And the reason we are rich is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Do you know the grace of God this morning? That He who was rich for our sake became poor so that you may become rich. We have so many riches in Christ and even more awaiting us if we're investing in the kingdom of heaven. What Christ has done for us is the motivation for our giving, but it is also the model for how we go about giving. So let me close with one more quote from Alcorn. This is what I want you to take away. Gaze upon Christ long enough and you will become more of a giver. Give long enough and you will become more like the Savior. Let's pray. It occurs to me, Father, that there is really only one thing to pray for now. And that all of the other things will fall in place if you would but answer this one prayer. To open our eyes. To see how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do that, we pray, for your glory and for the good of the church. In Christ's name, amen.